you. We're looking at the story of Jesus and all the things that led up to the cross and then up to his death, and today we're going to look at his burial. So I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to read the last few verses from that chapter, kind of the last chapter in this story of the cross, Luke 23, starting with verse 50. So if you've got a Bible that you've brought with you, that's great, or you can use your phone and the app, the church app has a great Bible on it, or um, there should be some Bibles in the chair there if you want to reach for one of those. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin." The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is God's Word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I wonder if any of you know this song. I love a parade, the tramping of feet, I love every beat, I hear of the drum. Do you know that song? We love parades, don't we? Is there anyone here who does not love a parade? Okay. Especially if they throw candy, right? I get a kick out of parades nowadays. Kids go with, like, grocery bags, and they collect up their candy. What a, what a special thing. So I'm going to take a little survey about uh, what, what you like better. Do you like, uh, A, going to a parade, or B, going to a funeral? Which would you rather do? A? Okay. Surprise. A, would you like to hold a puppy or would you like to carry a casket? Which would you prefer? Yeah. I've tried to find the cutest puppy picture I could because that always makes a sermon better if you can get a cute puppy (laughs) picture in there. Okay. Would you like to visit a beach or a cemetery? Which would you rather do, A or B? Yeah, usually. What do you like better? Palm Sunday or Good Friday? Yeah, it's, this one might be a little more difficult to like, land on, but we like a parade. We like the celebration. We like, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King has come. We like to celebrate, don't we? Good Friday is kind of synonymous with uh, death, the death of God. Let's, we'd rather celebrate His coming. So we're going to think today about these two phrases, and which would you prefer? Would you prefer to shout, Hosanna? hip, hip, hooray, or would you prefer to shout crucify him? Which would you prefer, A or B? Yeah, A feels a lot better, doesn't it? So Palm Sunday puts us into a little bit of a quandary because we know that Palm Sunday is this introduction to what we call Holy Week. We know that it is a day of celebration. It's a day of parades. It's a day of children singing and 
palm branch waving and celebration and anticipation of the King who comes to save us. But we also know that Palm Sunday enters us into this time with, in a few short days, those who have gathered to celebrate are going to begin to yell, crucify him. And this sense of euphoria that is present on Palm Sunday turns to a sense of abandonment, and there's betrayal, and there's beatings, and there's a crucifixion, and there's a death. And we know it's only a few days away. Now, I have a sense that if we had a choice, we might choose to say, hey, why don't we just skip right from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday? Wouldn't that be great? We'll go right from Hosanna to He is risen. And in fact, there's maybe a lot of people who do that. They don't get involved in the Holy Week kind of activities. It's certainly not as big a deal as I remember when I was a kid. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to Good Friday services with the neighbors who were Lutheran, and the Good Friday service started at noon on Good Friday. Anybody else ever participate in one of those? And some of the Lutheran churches had a service that went from noon until three. It went the whole time frame. And you could do this because in that day, uh, everything stopped on Good Friday. There was nothing else going on, so there's no school, there's no work. You go to celebrate Good Friday, and you sit in somber anticipation, usually reflecting on the last words of Christ. That's what you did on Good Friday. But we kind of skip that now. We have a tradition of doing Monday, Thursday, but not everybody even comes to that to think about the Last Supper of Christ. So there are a good number of people who go from Hosanna to He is Risen, and, and actually, we know a lot of people who go from He is risen to He is risen. They just come on Easter, so that skips all the rest of the parts, I guess. Palm Sunday invites us to a parade, and we love a parade. And so we love to think about the coming King and sing songs like, All glory, laud, and honor to Him, the Redeemer King. We like those songs. And yet, Palm Sunday is this weird place where the festive waving is short-lived. This is the reality of Palm Sunday, and I think we all know it, though I think that maybe we have a little bit of denial about it because we want to stay in the parade. We'd rather think about parade than do death talk or crucifixion talk. Crucifixion talk. There's actually been some interesting research done about how adverse we are as people to think about death and especially about our own deaths. And one of the research projects that caught my attention was one in which they went to some judges and before the judges passed sentence, they made these judges reflect on their own mortality. They had to think about their death. And then they went into the courtroom and they passed their sentences. And they found that these judges who had to think about their deaths levied fines that were nine times greater than the judges who didn't have to think about their death. Because we're adverse. We don't want to think about our own mortality. We are like no other living creature, I think, in that we are aware. We have self-consciousness. We're aware that we have mortality. I'm thinking about this. Certainly other animals recognize they can die. So say, let's say a cheetah is chasing an impala or chasing us. We would both run, right? Because we recognize this threat as an imminent threat to our mortality. But the impala doesn't go back to his office and sit around and think about dying like I did all week. 
This is the price we pay for self-awareness. We know that we're going to die, right? Even if we don't like to think about it, we all know it's true. We're all going to die. And you wouldn't think about it, and you're not actively thinking about it all the time unless the preacher sat in his office all week and thought about it, and then he brings it up on Sunday morning. (laughs) On Palm Sunday, no less. As we've seen over the last six weeks, all four of the Gospels give us a lot of detail about the crucifixion. In fact, the Gospels talk more about the death of Christ than any other topic. There's more, the chapters are longer, and there's more verses dedicated to talking about this in all of its detail. And it's not a pretty picture. Those last hours are not pretty. After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there's no more parades. That's it. We get all kinds of detail about the story, and it continues right up to the burial of Christ. Now, I think that nothing drives home the reality of death or the finality of death than funerals, uh, particularly burials. Now, today we have a custom when we do funerals, and that is um, a lot of people don't like the term, so they always start by saying, hey, we don't want a funeral. We want a, you know what they call it? Yeah, because we don't want to admit it's about death. We want a celebration of life. So we get together and we share stories and we have recollections about our loved ones. We think about the way they impacted and shaped us and we think about the good things that they have done. And we have this little celebration. And then we add to that celebration of their life some thoughts about what what does God have to say to us about this. And it seems to me that if there's ever a time when we have really good attention of a congregation, it is during a funeral or during a celebration of life. Everybody's paying attention because it's one of those times when our The reality of our death, our mortality, comes to the surface. We have to face it. And I might be biased, but I think we do good funerals around here. We do a lot of encouragement. And I think it's actually a time for us to do some good remembering of our loved ones and also gain some perspective on what God says. And more than one family has told us that was a good funeral, if you can say that kind of thing. And then after the funeral... We go to the cemetery, and the cemetery takes on a completely different feel than a celebration of life. You go to the cemetery, and what usually happens there is there's usually a very brief prayer, and then there's usually a very brief reading of Scripture, and then there's an introduction um, to the deed that's to be done, and it, the introduction goes like this, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's how we were made. And then there's a brief statement of committal. We commit our loved one to this place, to this ground. And people leave the cemetery shortly after they arrive there. And my hunch is that the the main feeling is probably relief because this thing is over. But there's another feeling that comes with it. Cemeteries and burials bring this deep sense of finality. It's done now. It's over. And nobody, as far as I've ever experienced, ever sticks around to watch the casket lowered into the ground. Because that's too final. It's too hard to face. And so by the time they do that, we're usually long gone. So we might have a 
couple of reasons why we might be tempted to skip over the burial part of the story. Because it's Palm Sunday, we'd rather have a parade. We don't want to think about this. We generally don't like to think about death. And to face the burial seems like it's too final. It might be too hard. Plus, we recognize that, you know, all the action on the cross has already happened, and we've already focused on that enough. And we want to get to the next action, which is actually on Easter. We want to get to that. So we might want to just skip over this part. And normally we might do that, but not today. Listen to what Mark says. We already heard what Luke said about this. Let's listen to Mark. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Maybe we need to look at these burial stories as a way to prepare ourselves for the resurrection. Maybe this is one more step we have to take to verify that Jesus was really dead because you don't bury someone if they're not dead. And this might, be, it might seem like piling on because we've already had a bunch of different testimonies to this. The death of Jesus was undisputed by everybody who was there watching it. Remember the Romans who were like experts in execution? They were not going to let someone off the cross until they died. The people who were watching it witnessed him make his last statement and breathe his last breath. Then they witnessed these Roman soldiers who were trying to verify things pierce his side with a sword, no doubt puncturing his lung and probably puncturing his heart as well, and water and blood flow. Those who were watching it had no doubt that he was dead. Pilate's a little bit surprised when he hears about it. This is because often crucifixions would last for days. Someone could hang on the cross for days before they died. Of course, it's no wonder that Jesus is already dead since he was beaten half to death before he even got nailed to the cross. So they go and they verify it and they tell Pilate, he's really dead. And so Pilate gives the body to Joseph. If there's any doubt... If there's any skeptic still out there, if there's anybody who's wondering about the death of Jesus, they buried him. They put him in a tomb. That marks the end of a life. And that might be enough to say about this, but it seems like something else is going on here. And each one of the gospel writers gives us a little different angle on what's happening. Listen to what John says about the same situation. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body the two of them wrapped it with the spices and, and strips of linen. This was the custom with Jewish burial. At that place, 
where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, you might think that Jesus died, and that's the end of it. The deed is done. There's no more drama. Everything's finished. But the story's not over yet, and there's some interesting things here in John's version of it. We know from historical records that most individuals who were crucified on the cross did not get to be buried. Romans, you know, were really doing the crucifixions in part to humiliate the criminal, to make a case, to make an example of them. And the humiliation usually continued even after they died. The bodies would be left on the cross for days, weeks, and months so the body could rot in full view of everyone or be scavenged by the birds. No, these criminals were not usually buried. The governor, Pilate, could make a decision in kind of consideration for the family out of courtesy. He could decide to give them the body if someone from the family had come to them and made that request. But the women who were at the cross, his mother probably would have had no voice, and so Pilate probably would have ignored her if she came and requested it. If any of Jesus' inner circle were there, they might have made the request, but are any of the inner circle there? No. Not even Peter. Remember Peter's brash statement earlier? I will never leave you. Um, if, all else, if everyone else abandons you, I will be there. I will follow you to death. Remember Peter saying that? Where's Peter now? Hiding in shame. One of the commentators I came across made this interesting observation. He said this, Isn't it a shame that in the hour of crisis, it is sadly often the case that it is the Peter's who have sworn loyalty to Jesus with big gestures and fullness of self-confidence who disappoint us. Peter preferred a parade. He preferred Hosanna to crucify him. Sadly, he's missing. And so we're introduced to a couple new characters, actually one brand new character. This is the only mention in the whole Bible of this guy, Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. We get a little bit of kind of introduction to him from all four Gospels. They mention things like he was wealthy. He was a good man. He was a righteous man. He was a member of the council. They're talking about the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin were one of those groups that weighed in about Jesus' crucifixion. And we're told that Joseph disagreed with their decision that Jesus should be crucified. But it's not clear if he spoke up because it also tells us that he was a follower of Jesus in secret. Maybe he didn't want anyone to know he was following Jesus. He was looking for the kingdom of God to come. At this moment, for some reason, Joseph steps up. Mark's version said he approached Pilate boldly, or he approached Pilate with courage. So whatever was causing him to live his life as a disciple in secret has now vanished. He outs himself. He goes to Pilate and he says, I I want the body of Jesus. Can I have it? And he partners with someone else, Nicodemus. You remember him from John chapter 3? He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night to hear about being born again. 
and he becomes a follower of Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph must be pals. They're both secret followers of Jesus in the Sanhedrin. The job that Joseph has to do by taking care of this body is a big job. He needs help, and so he enlists Nicodemus' help. Something made them step up in this moment, in this risky situation. They, they step out of the shadow. These are not front-of-the-parade kind of guys, right? These are not flag-waving followers of Christ. But something in this moment makes them step up. And they need to step up, and they need, uh, the, the need is urgent. And I picture their activity as being somewhat frantic. We know from the rest of the story that Jesus probably died around 3. And we also know that the Jewish Sabbath day starts at 6. So between 3 and 6, all these things have to happen. They have to confirm that Jesus is dead. They have to go get permission from Pilate to take the body. They have to go take the body down from the cross. They have to take the body to the tomb. They have to prepare the body by washing it ceremonially. Then they have to purchase linens and spices. They have to wrap the body and cover it with spices. They have to place the body in the tomb and roll the stone in front of the tomb and close the tomb up so that Jesus is buried by six. And they do all this in a hurry, in a whirlwind, with haste. The clock is ticking. And the whole time, there's this dread sense that this is the end. It's done. Jesus is dead and buried, and it's over. And it seems like Joseph and Nicodemus are the only two who are really willing to face that. Well, and these women who have followed all along. But is it over? Listen to Matthew's description of the same thing. Actually, he's taking us forward just a little bit to the next day. This would have been the Sabbath day. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last description will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. This request reflects some kind of lingering anxiety on the part of those who wanted to see Jesus crucified. You'd think that the death would end it. You'd think that the burial would end it. But they're still anxious. They're still worried. Something else is going on here. Burial did not end their anxiety. And Matthew does some very interesting kind of foreshadowing here. He's kind of giving us a little sense that, okay, keep looking forward. This isn't over. The burial's not the end. There's something else coming. And this anxiety of the Jewish leaders actually unwittingly sets up additional witnesses who are going to be present on Easter Sunday to watch this thing unfold. Somebody else who's going to see what happens at the tomb. And this is where the story ends for today, and it's, i got to admit, it's hard to leave it here. You know, we've gone through the, the hosannas of Palm Sunday, and we've gone through the horrors of the crucifixion, and now we're at the silence of the tomb. 
The body's in the tomb. And oh my gosh, it's hard to stay there. We want to jump forward. We want to get to the He is risen. We don't want to leave it there. But that's another story. One last question for you. Do you have a favorite death verse from the Bible? Anybody? A favorite death verse? Did Oh, you're jumping ahead. Good one. We don't usually think about this. You know there's over 1,300 verses in the Bible about death and dying and people being dead. It comes up all the time. Uh, back to this little research project, there's some psychologists who suggest that deep within each of us, there's like this little spring that's coiled, uh, ready to unleash this nightmare that somebody we love is going to die today, maybe even us. And that, that we suppress that. We do everything we can to like, try to subdue that because we don't want to face it. And one way we do that is by living in denial. We think it's not going to happen to us. It's definitely not going to happen today. We suppress it. We're invincible. We're immortal. I recently saw someone who was living in this kind of denial. I noticed the vanity plate on the car said, Forever 29. And truth, the woman driving this car was way older than 29. (laughs) We can try to deny it, but this research project actually showed that there's a better way to deal with it. They say the better way to deal with it is to actually look it square in the face, to name it. In fact, one of the things they suggested, one of the most healthy things you could do for this is kiss your loved one on the forehead every morning and say to them, today you could die. I haven't tried that yet, but (laughs) rather than pulling the curtains over the darkness that's on the other side, you look out the window and you stare at it. And we can do that because of the death of Jesus. My favorite death passage, John 11, 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if you die, yet you will live. And then my second, the runner-up passage is 2 Corinthians 15, actually several verses, 54 to 58. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you not even death. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks because you are a great God. And we thank you because of your never-ending love for the way that you reveal it to us in these amazing ways. Um, Most of all, by the gift of your Son who, who defeated death and conquered death for us. And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Lois. I'm one of the elders here, and I would like you to pray with me, please. Dear Father, we come to you, and we say thank you. Thank you, first of all, that you were willing to die, and that your death was not meaningless, and your death was not the end, as we have just heard. It's hard to stop here, Lord, and just look at your death, but 
We thank you for that this morning, and we come to you grateful because you are the all-powerful God, and death cannot stop you. Even death cannot stop you. Lord, I just come to you with so many things that are happening in our world today, Lord, and and as I listen to the sermon, I think of the words crucify him, and I see places in the world where they are symbolically crucifying you. Lord, there are so many people that still don't know you, and while it seems like such a long time ago that you died, and people don't know that yet, and there are so many places where people are saying, crucify him. It's not important. We have other things we need to do, other things we care about, Lord. And I just lift those things up to you. I lift up the situations in our world, in other countries, Lord, where people are evil. And we thank you that your death on the cross gives us hope. And so we give those things that are happening in the world, we give those to you because you are the only one that has power over them. Lord, we look at things that are happening in our country and division among people, division among families, Lord. We lift those up to you. And we thank you that we can look to you and that you have the answers, Lord, and we turn those problems over to you today. Lord, we thank you for this church and we shout Hosanna this morning because we know that you are alive and we thank you again that we can come here and have the freedom to worship you. We have the freedom to march around with palm branches and shout Hosanna, which they don't, can't do in a lot of places, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. We thank you that crucify him was not the end. Death was not the end of the story. And I pray that you would keep us mindful of, it, of that this week, that you are powerful. And you can do anything, and we just need to turn to you and lay things before you, lay our our problems before the cross. Lord, you've said that we can call on you, and you will answer and show us great and mighty things. And we thank you again for that, because you are a great and mighty God, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.